This is the book You Were Made for This Moment by Max Locato. Chapter 1 Searching for Springtime Winter casts a cold shadow. The days are short. The nights are long. The sun seems shy, hidden behind the grayness. Warmth was packed. Warmth has packed her bags and migrated to the tropics. Beach weather would be nice, but that's not going to happen. It's winter. Spring will see blossoms. Summer sways leafy bushes in the wind. Autumn gives forth a harvest of plenty. But winter? Winter is still deathly still. Fields are frosty. Trees extend skeletal limbs. Wildlife is silent. Gone. Winter brings danger. Blizzards, ice storms, caution is the theme. Come springtime, you'll run barefoot through the meadow and plunge into the pond. But now, it's best to button up, zip up, stay in, and stay safe. It's winter out there. Is it winter where you are? Are you trapped in a perpetual gloom? Do you know the solstice of sunless days and barren trees? I know a mom who does. A mom of three kids. Two in diapers and one with a disability. Her apartment is small. Her income is meager. And her husband is AWOL. Life in camp chaos was too much for him. It's too much for her as well. But what choice does she have? Somebody always needs to be fed, changed, held, or bathed. So she does whatever needs doing. And it appears she will be doing it forever. She wonders if this winter will ever pass. So does my friend Ed. He and I have much in common. Our health is good. Our golf game is poor. We both like dogs. We both have marriages that predate the Carter administration. The difference? My wife just asked me what I want for dinner. His keeps asking him who he is. He placed her in a memory care facility a year ago. They dreamed of touring the country in an RV. So far, he spent his retirement sleeping alone and making daily visits to a woman who stares out the window. Can you relate? When did you first realize that life was not going to turn out the way you thought? Your parents divorced. Your spouse cheated. Your health never recovered. Your friend never returned. In that moment, a Siberian cold settled over your life. Your world became an arctic circle of dark days, long nights, and bitter weather. Winter. This book was born in winter. As I pen these words, every person on the planet is living in the frost nip of COVID-19. A pandemic has locked us down. The mom I told you about? Her income is meager because her restaurant job was discontinued. Ed can still see his wife, but only through a window. Church doors are closed. Students are stuck at home. Masks hide smiles. A microscopic virus has paralyzed us. And an ancient sin threatens to undo us. Those of us who'd hoped racism was fading were convinced otherwise. An officer's knee on the neck of a black man activated a subterranean anger. A volcano was spewed into the streets of many cities. The entire world seems wrapped in winter. We are all searching for springtime. Winters are part of life, some personal, some global, but all are powerful. Try as we might to bundle up and lean into the wind, the hardiest among us can fall. The wind is too strong. Nights are too long and the question is all too common. Will this winter ever pass? You wonder, don't you wonder, if you will survive this? If so, God has a six-letter word of encouragement for you. E-S-T-H-E-R, Esther. The book that bears her name was written to be read in wintertime, written for the emotionally weary, written for the person who feels outnumbered by foes, outmaneuvered by fate, and outdone by fear. It's as if God, in his kind providence, heard all the prayers of all the souls who have ever been stuck in the Arctic February.
To every person who has longed to see a green sprig on a barren branch, he says, follow me. I want you to see what I can do. He escorts us to the front row of a grand theater and invites us to take a seat. He nods at the symphony conductor. The baton is lifted. The music begins. The curtain opens and we are eyewitnesses to a triumph of divine drama. The setting is in the city of Susa in 5th century BC Persia, modern-day Iran. The empire was to its day what Rome was to the 1st century. During the reign of Darius I, also known as Darius the Great, 522 to 486 BC, it controlled more than 2.9 million square miles. The empire consisted of roughly 44% of the world's population and an estimated 50 million people. It stretched some 4,464 miles from what is now Punjab, India to Khartoum, Sudan. To get the scope of it, walk from Los Angeles to Atlanta, turn around and walk back to LA. Or if you prefer... Duplicate the United States map, set the two copies side by side, and you get the feel for the breadth of the Persian Empire. The cast consists of memorable quartet of characters. Xerxes, the king, had a thirst for wine, a disregard for women, and a convictions that changed with the weather. He ruled over Persia from 486 to 465 BC. His name in Hebrew is Ahasuerus, which pronounced correctly sounds like a good sneeze. For that reason, his name in Greek, Xerxes, will be my choice. Besides, any name that makes you double use the letter X is fun to write. The book of Esther portrays him as a wimp, an accomplished drinker, but not much of a thinker. He was most comfortably holding a goblet and delegating decisions. The story attributes to him no profound thoughts or statesmanship, statesmanlike decrees. <laughs> Catch him in the right mood and he'd agree to genocide. At least that was the experience of Haman, the villain in our story. His name sounds like Hangman, which is convenient because this tyrant was all about death. He was a wealthy and influential officer in the cabinet of Xerxes. His jet was private. His wardrobe was tailored. His, he got manicures on Mondays and played golf with Xerxes on Thursday. He had the ear of the king, the swagger of a pimp, and the compassion of Hitler. Yes, that's accurate. We see a lot of Adolf and Haman. Both demanded to be worshipped, both were intolerant of subversion, and both set out to exterminate the entire Jewish race. Can't you almost hear Hitler saying what Haman said? Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Esther 3, 8-9 those certain people were none other than the Hebrew nation, the children of Israel, descendants of Abraham and the family tree of Jesus Christ. They were scattered throughout the Persian Empire. To Haman, they were inconsequential flecks of dandruff on the royal robe of Xerxes. But to God, they were a chosen race through whom he would redeem humankind. One of the exiled Jews really got under Haman's skin. His name was Mordecai. We are going to love him eventually, but you'll be puzzled by him initially. Quite content to be quiet, he chose to keep his ancestry under wraps, but a person could take only so much of Haman. Mordecai had a cousin whom he had brought up because she was an orphan. She must have been a head-turner. Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. The ancient rabbinical writings position her as one of the four most beautiful women in the world, along with Sarah, Rahab, and Abigail. She gained access to the king because of her appearance, but her story has relevance to yours because of her conviction and courage. Are you sensing the element of the drama? 
a clueless brute of a king, a devious, heartless, bloodthirsty Haman, a nation of Jews under threat of extermination, Mordecai, defiant and determined, Esther, gorgeous and gutsy, and God? Where is God in the story? Ah, there is a question fit for the asking. The book of Esther is known for being one of the two books in the Bible that never mention the name of God. Until this point, he has been everywhere, seemingly on every page. In Eden, the creator. In Ur, the prompter. In Egypt, the liberator. In the promised land, the warrior. But in Persia, the trail has grown cold. At no point do we read, and God said, or God chose, or God decreed. There is no mention of the temple or the name Yahweh or Elohim. Hebrew nouns meaning God, there is no mention of apocalyptic visions as Daniel saw or concern for God's law as Ezra expressed. Prayer is implied but not described. The seas do not split, the heavens do not roar, no dry bones come to life. Why? Why the absence of spirituality? Why the seeming silence of God? If you are in the midst of a winter, you can relate to these questions. God may seem hidden to you, distant, removed, absent from your script. Your world feels cut loose from the sun. Others hear from God. You don't. Others say they know the will of God. You're bewildered. Others have a backstage pass to his performance. But you? You can't find his name on the playbill. Is he there? Does he care? You're unsure. Might you be open to a gold nugget that lies in the subterranean of Esther's story? Quiet providence. Providence is the $2 term theologians, theologians use to describe God's continuous control over history. He not only spoke the universe into being, but he governs it by his authority. He is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Hebrews 1.3 He is regal, royal, and this is essential. He is right here. He is not preoccupied with the plight of Pluto or at the expense of your problems and pain. He has been known to intervene dramatically. By his hand the Red Sea opened, the manna fell from heaven, a virgin gave birth, and a tomb gave life. Yet for every divine shout, there are a million whispers. The book of Esther relates the story of our whispering God, who is unseen and inscrutable in ways superintends all the actions and circumstances for the good of this of his people this priceless book reminds us that he need not be loud to be strong he need not cast a shadow to be present god is still eloquent eloquent in his seeming seeming silence and still active when he appears more most distant does god seem absent to you if so, the book of Esther deserves your attention. Allow yourself to be caught up in the drama. Act 1. Confusion. God's people chose the glamour of Persia over the goodness of God. Compromise replaces conviction. Confusion replaces, replaces clarity. Act 2. Crisis. A decree of death places all Jews on life support. What hope does a fringe minority have in a pagan society? Act 3. Conquest. The unimaginable happens. Something so unexpected that sorrow turned to joy, and their mourning somersaulted into a holiday for parties and fun and laughter. The theme of the book of Esther, indeed the theme of the Bible, is that all the injustice of the world will be turned on their head. Grand reversals are God's trademark. When we feel as though everything is falling apart, God is working in our midst, causing everything to fall into place. He is the king of quiet providence, and he invites you and me to partner with him in his work. The headline of the book of Esther reads, Relief will come. Will you be a part of it? When all seems lost, it's not. When evil seems to own the day, 
God still has the final say. He has a Joseph for every famine and a David for every Goliath. When his people need rescuing, God calls a Rahab into service. When a baby needs a mama, God prompts an Egyptian princess to have compassion. He always has his person. He had someone in the story of Esther. And in your story, he has you. You want to retreat, stay quiet, stay stay safe, stay backstage. I don't have what it takes, you tell yourself. You could dismiss the made-for-this-moment idea as mere folly, but I oh so hope you won't. Relief will come. Will you be part of it? The world gets messy for sure, but God's solution solutions come through people of courage, people like Mordecai and Esther, people like you, people who dare to believe that they, by God's grace, were made to face a moment like this. For those stuck in Acts 1 and 2... Be assured, Act 3 is on the way. In God's plan, confusion and crisis give way to conquest. Winters don't last forever. Trees will soon bud. Snow will soon melt. Springtime is only a turn of the calendar away. For all we know, God's hand is about to turn the page. Good morning. It's uh, Saturday, March 19th, and this is the New Morning Mercies Devotional. Faith is about measuring your potential not on the basis of your natural gifts and experience, but in the surety of God's presence and promises. It's almost almost a humorous story. It's found in Judges 6, 11-18. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this mighty, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. God approaches Gideon to call him to lead Israel in a very important battle and calls him a mighty man of valor. Where does he he find this mighty man? He finds him threshing wheat in a wine press. He's doing something indoors that you normally go out do outdoors because he's afraid of the very people whom God is to call him to attack. God calls him a mighty man not because of Gideon's natural strength and courage, but because of what Gideon will be able to do and the power that God will give him. We know this is true because God gives begins his statement with these words, The Lord is with you. Poor, fearful Gideon even questions that. Then Gideon essentially says, God, you must have the wrong address. I'm the least son of the most inconsequential tribe in all Israel. How in the world do you expect me to save Israel? As this statement reveals, Gideon both misunderstands who he is and who God is. If you fail to remember who God is in his power, glory, and grace, and you forget who you are as a child in his family, you will always mismeasure your potential to do what God has called you to do. You will measure your capability based on your natural gifts and the size of whatever it is that God has chosen you to face. 
Thankfully, since God is with you, you have been blessed with wisdom and power beyond your own that give you the potential you would not have on your own. For further study and encouragement, read 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the world's foolish things to shame the wise, and God has chosen the world's weak things to shame the strong. God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing, so he might bring to nothing the things that are viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. But from him you are in Christ Jesus, who for us became wisdom from God, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Lord Jesus, forgive me for boasting in anything except for you. Forgive me for looking at my talent, Lord Jesus, my uh, human ability, Father, and um, wavering between feelings of insecurity and insignificance to uh, pride and boastfulness, Lord Jesus, and doing stuff in my flesh. Lord, um, I can only do it with you. I thank you for your promise that you will be with me. You will be with us. Lord Jesus, you have chosen the, the foolish to shame the wise, Father. Lord, the, the weak to, to bring the strong low. And I thank you for that, Jesus. Lord, you are strong. You are mighty. You are God. And I am not. We are not. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom. For ours is folly. Mine is folly. In your name I pray. Amen.